Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Climate Champions. In this episode, I'm joined for two separate interviews with members of the Sport College Group. In the first, I have Dr. Walker Ross, Assistant Professor of Sport Management at Florida Southern College. And in the second, Jamie Pelcher, a doctoral student at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Both of these conversations were a lot of fun to record as Walker and Jamie are close friends of mine, and I hope you'll enjoy them as much as I did. So thank you, Walker, for joining the show. It's fun to, I know I said this when I spoke with Brian, but it's really fun to get to speak to my own colleagues um, on the show because I know you guys, but I don't think people really know what all of us do for a living and how it all works. So it's fun to, it's fun to get to chat. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I think this is going to be a, a great resource for people. So I'm happy to help out. So Walker, you're from the Pacific Northwest. Tell me your story a little bit. I think when I hear Pacific Northwest, I equate that to sustainability. So for me, it clicks. But um, tell me about how you got into the sports sustainability space. It's a question I ask everybody, but your story is sure. cool. So sure, sure. Um, it's I'll try to to make it as as simple as I possibly can. But um, <laughs> I I went to college in Portland and I studied environmental ethics and policy, and I loved the topic. Uh, I really enjoyed every single class that I was taking. I'd always been involved in environmental restoration projects as a kid growing up. Um, I, I will, I'm not afraid to say that I was a Boy Scout and I did like a Eagle Scout project that was um, restoration of a creek through my hometown and um, I things was a of that nature. Wow. Awesome. Great. Awesome. <laughs> um, so it just seemed natural that I would study that topic, but um, it, it, to be honest, it, it was very depressing at the time. Um, because my, my teachers were definitely like climate change is coming and you need to prepare and nobody's taking it seriously. Um, and it's all true and it needs to be said. Um, but I was working in the athletics department the entire time I was an undergraduate and I really enjoyed that. And I just didn't know that you could have a career in sports outside of being like the athlete themselves. And so it was, it was eye opening, and I kind of decided that's what I would rather do is, is work in sports. And so I spent that time in NCAA Division One athletics, and then I had an internship for the summer after I graduated with the Portland Timbers of Major League Soccer and the Portland Thorns of the National Women's Soccer League, which was so much fun um, to be a part of those organizations, and I'm still a huge fan of them today. But um, I kind of realized during that time I didn't want to, I didn't want to work in sports. I, I wanted to be part of sports, and I wanted to study it, and so that's when I decided to go to graduate school. Um, and I got my master's at Georgia and I got my PhD at South Carolina and I kind of, it, it became a natural fit that I knew I wanted to explore these topics in greater detail and kind of combining my background and environment and my passion for sports just, it clicked and it made sense and everything else from there is just part of the history at this point. So when we talk about sustainability in sport, there's a couple different scopes that we tend to go for. Um, and I want to talk to you about this because I feel like we sometimes over-exaggerate one or the other and, and don't actually kind of put them in order. So, um, you know, at the most basic level, scope one is really kind of the the bread and butter, what's happening in the facility itself. Um, scope three being kind of what's happening with the fans, the broader picture, the external facing. Uh, and scope two is kind of the stuff in the middle. So the, um, you know, 
suppliers and, and what's happening in your supply chain and who you're using to travel with and so on and so forth. Um, you wrote a whole PhD project on what's going on with scope one sustainability. And I think that it's the most obvious one. It's the, uh, you know, recycling, the gateway drug sustainability. Um, but different organizations are really at different points with that. So what did you learn through your thesis? Um, what were the findings? And, and if you had to kind of give some recommendations to people listening to this podcast, what would you say about getting that scope one right? Sure. Um, so the the dissertation was uh, on understanding how people who manage these venues where sport and entertainment live events take place, um, how they manage the various environmental impacts. And that could be classified as like the resources that they take or the byproducts that they produce. Um, but, you know, in a, in a broad sense, um, what is the environmental impact? And so when you take all those different things like waste, electricity, chemical use, you know, any discharges that you have, if you have to make a decision on those, what's the order? And so um, I asked a couple hundred um, managers to essentially rank these things using a, a, a new, not a new method, but an interesting method called best worst scaling. And um, the results were um, fascinating and also about what you would expect. Um, I found that, that energy use and um, waste production, um, which is recycling and compost and um, traditional landfill, water consumption, those are very high priority items. Um, and, but I also think that those items make sense as a high priority because they're big ticket items. They're, they're obvious to fans. They also are a huge budget um, burden for these venues. Whereas um, at the very other end of the spectrum was things like oil consumption, um, chemical use was down there as well, and emissions production. Those are perhaps not as big a ticket. It's not as obvious. And, and I don't know that there are many venues out there in the whole scope of venues that are really tracking their emissions. So even though those managers might recognize that emissions is important compared to the, some of the other things, like the amount of food that you're consuming, it's just not. Um, so the big takeaways from this for me are one, you know, if we really want to break through um, the walls that are preventing some people from going green in this industry, now we know what those items are. Um, and those are ranked based on their environmental impact or their financial impact. I left it up to those, to those managers to decide. Um, so you, we know that these are the things we need to talk about. But at the other end of the spectrum, you know, let's focus on emissions. You and I know that that's a critical issue. Um, but it's clearly not that important for people that are that are in these decision-making capacities. And so we need to realize that um, while we understand it's important, we need to make them understand that this is a is a higher priority than they're currently ranking it at the moment. So now we know what we need to work on essentially at both ends of the spectrum. But that can be challenging, right? Because, you know, yes, you and I get it. And I think part of it is that, we have this conversation for our jobs every day, all the time, you know, Absolutely. every time you and I get on the phone, that's the conversation we're having. And so we, we're there. That's where our thinking already is. Um, it's our job to know the answer to that question. And I think that there's some hesitancy among managers with having that conversation. Um, we actually like shameless plug are working on a paper on this right now, but what are some yeah. of the barriers to having an honest conversation about what has to happen 
with regard to climate change and sustainability in sport? Like, why are we not having those conversations publicly? Sure. Um, yeah, I've had a paper a long time coming on this, and uh, um, that I just need to get it over the finish line. Um, and what I found is that people will give you various excuses, um, and you can certainly read about these things in literature that it's a financial issue or it's a priority issue. Um, you know, they'll give you a whole, or they don't have enough time, they don't have the the person power to actually make these things happen. They'll give you a whole bunch of things like that, and those might be true. Um, but I think the bigger theme over all these things is that they just don't really know how to do it efficiently um, because some of these environmental um, ticket items that we that we know of actually will save you money, but maybe venue managers and, and people working in the industry don't know that, or they look at these and they think this is going to cost me so much time and energy to do, and it, and it really might not be. So it's about bringing them the education that they don't have on this topic so that the, the money issues fall aside, the time issues fall aside, the priority issues, they all kind of um, fall by the wayside because you know how to, how to break down those barriers. One of the issues that I've noticed is that um, sometimes the person who's responsible for sustainability isn't in a position of power enough to influence the people in their organization. Um, and sometimes those, that person, right, that sustainability officer, agent, or whatever they're called, um, get kind of pigeonholed in their job. So like, hey, you know, Walker, I need you to do this one thing. I need you to figure out recycling. Um, and then they they have the knowledge to do more and they have the agency to do more. They just don't have the power. And so how do we help those people not only get the education they need, um, but get the resources, get the power, move up in the organization? Like, what do you recommend? Because I think, and I'm like the biggest critic of sustainability in sport. And I often get called out saying people are doing really good work. Um, mm -hmm. And the answer is, of course they are. But those people are too few and they don't have enough power. So how do we change that? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll say two things in response to that. One is, um, you're right that, that those people get pigeonholed sometimes and, and they, they're they given the one project, like you said, and they do that and people think, well, they're, they're the recycling manager from now on rather than the sustainability or innovation person or whatever other titles you want to give them. Um, and what I found is that, that more often those roles are not, um, they're not defined. It's It's kind of ceremonially ceremonially given to someone um, who cares about the issue. So I, I know for a fact I've spoken with a venue manager of a kind of small to mid-sized venue in a in like a tertiary market in the US who said that the only reason that we have done taken on all these things, changing the glass so that it changes, you know, its um, its color depending on the sunlight, all these cool little uh, um, innovations that we've taken on is because I care about this. And I happen to be in charge. Um, and the other thing on that is that a lot of those projects get spread out. And so you might have somebody who's like operations, who's dealing with um, recycling, but then there's somebody else who's in charge of, of um, I don't know, the, the food side of, of things. And they feel like their job is to only deal with composting and, and um, oil you know, drainage and capture and, and local sourcing of food. So it's not really that it's under an umbrella um, of one person, which kind of makes the system even more chaotic. Um, but in terms of how you actually get them the education, I think that 
this needs to be more prominent in all those industry um, resources uh, in terms of the conferences they go to, whatever the publications they're reading, um, the International Association of Venue Managers, for example, they have they have their conferences, they have their publications. This is something they talk about. Um, and so it, it's getting that knowledge to those people in a way that they can access it. Because I think sometimes we forget that as academics, we, we know all this, this information and we're publishing it, but people in the industry aren't reading JSM, unfortunately, um, as much as we'd love for them to do that. Um, so we need to get our knowledge into those, into those sources that these people are actually reading actively or, or participating in actively. Yeah, and so we started the Sportacology Group. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's a perfect example of what we're doing. Um, so for those of you who don't know, the Sportacology Group has a research page. It's actually the most visited page on our site, which like blows me away every time I check. Um, but we, as a team, summarize all the research that's coming out. So if you're a venue manager, that's a really good resource. And then we'll point you in the direction of other resources as well if we don't have them in-house. So thank you so much, Walker, for joining at Thank you for having me. You've had a very interesting path to getting into this area. Mm -hmm. Unlike most of the people that I have spoken to, it wasn't like that wasn't the goal from the get-go. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, Brian at the beginning of the season was talking about getting into this to carve a niche for himself. Um, Walker had talked about getting into sport ecology because he'd studied environmental science, loved it, but loved playing water polo and being involved in the athletics department. And, you know, he came through that path. Yours was very different. Mm -hmm. So how did you come to be in the sport ecology space? Wow. Um, obviously, I out of high school, I went right into the work field, owned my own business when I was 18. And um, I had no interest in college. I was done with school. I was I was right. done. So uh, paved my way through industry and business, and just went from a small little um, nail nail business, and you know, growing up in my mom's business. Then I eventually, you know, opened a restaurant, and then another restaurant, and then. I somehow got suckered into a horse farm. I'm not quite sure still how that happened, but <laughs> I did. I did get suckered into that too. Had a horse farm, um, so you know, just bounced from things to things. Always very gung ho. Wanted to try whatever I could. You know, if it seemed like a good idea, I was willing to put in the work to do it. I loved being physical. I loved being on the front lines, like in the, in the restaurant. I was always in the back cooking. I just, I just, if it was physical, I wanted to do it. And I think that comes from my upbringing, born and raised a coach's daughter, grew up on the sidelines of a football field. Um, my dad had a dual scholarship for football and baseball at Seton Hall. And I was an elite level gymnast. So sport is in the blood and has always been there. That phys physicality was always there. So, um, so I've always done it. And even when my career as an, a gymnast stopped, I continued, I would climb mountains, I would race sailboats, I played golf, I, um, oh, God, you name it. I mean, I got my black belt at 40. So I always <laughs> just crazy. And I was very happy with my life and it was fine. Um, then, you know, recession came, had a rough time during that. I managed to save my baby, my restaurant. So I was very happy, got through that. And then um, one day I woke up and I couldn't feel my arms. I literally had no use of my arms and went to the hospital. And after a couple of weeks, it turned out that the discs in my neck, neck had herniated and they were crushing my spinal cord. 
And so the doctors were like, you're not doing anything for a year. You're, you're right. done. And recovery. That's it. You cannot mm-hmm. anything. And any business owner knows that, you know, the cat's away, the mice will play. <laughs> it's just, it's part of business. If you're not there, it's, it's hard to run a successful business, especially in the small business. Yeah. You know, like small rural area where I it work. really, it really requires your involvement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I decided that just in case I wanted to revisit my restaurant again, I decided to close. I had no other choice. So I closed my restaurant and had my surgery, laying in bed, just completely depressed. And um, someone said to me, this is either going to be the best or the worst thing that ever happened to you, but it's all in your perspective. How are you, how are you going to deal with it? I mean, I was single mom, two young kids, um, no way, no income. And on a whim, I said, oh, well, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to go to college. Um, I had nothing else to do. I didn't have my, you know, my physical self. I only had my mental self. And it was something that it was like, well, maybe I'd be okay. Maybe I'll go get my two-year business administration administration degree. I have all this business experience and maybe it would help me get a job when I'm ready to go back in a year. So uh, against doctor's orders, got into my car, drove, took all those tests, which I cannot believe I passed because I hadn't been in school for like, you know, 20 something years. And I was accepted in a community college. I went to Southwestern Community College and, you know, was like, all right, I'm going to get my degree. Well, the next thing you know, they were like, hey, you know, you're doing well. How about a scholarship? Oh, cool. All right. Well, maybe I'll get two degrees. You know, I'll get my business administration and maybe I'll do a college transfer just in case. Um, And it was during that time I had to take an environmental uh, uh, and I took an environmental science class. Um, it was part of the curriculum. It was not really anything I was interested in because believe it or not, I was probably one of the worst people in the world when it came to sustainability. Mm-hmm. I, oh my God, I was horrible. I threw out everything. I didn't care. I would make fun of people who did. I mean, I was literally the worst. And, um, but it was like, oh, well, you can take chemistry or you can take, you know, environmental. I was like, all right, well, I'll take environmental. And that teacher um, she changed my life. It was just one of those situations where I learned so much about env- the environment from fracking to, I mean, just everything that you, from recycling, from the chemicals and sunscreen to what it does to the reefs, just, she covered such a broad area and she was so passionate about herself that it was contagious. Um, and I remember my first ever project I had to do, I did a whole little project on green roof technology. And I thought it was the most fascinating thing. And I found ways that, hey, you know, you could do it yourself at home. You can have a cardboard and this and that. You could really make a green roof if you wanted to. And I, and I just, I became the nut. And as an honors project, um, I decided, all right, I'm going to make this school more sustainable, my campus more sustainable. And for my honors project for that class, I was able to get the dean to um, order recycling, three bucket recycling bins for the entire school. Wow. Didn't have any. So that was kind of like, that was my first experience of, wow, you can really do something. One person can do something. Um, So at that point, I was like, all right, I'm not ready to go to work. I want to go to school more. And I was like, all right. So I got a scholarship to go to Western Carolina. I got the Chancellor's Scholarship, which paid to get my um, four-year degree. And I was like, all right, well, what am I going to study? I was like, I I don't know. And then someone told me about sport management. 
And I was like, well, that kind of makes sense. You know, my love of sport, my experience of management. All right, we'll go do that. Um, So enrolled there. And then I wanted to, of course, make the most of my scholarship because that's just the way I am. So double, I, you know, also got a finance degree and a minor in economics. I was like, all right, this is cool. You know, and kept going, kept going. And I was like, huh. I got an email one day that said, hey, have you seen this program? Um, because everybody knew I was into sustainability. And during this time, I actually took it upon myself to get my lead green associate. Wow. So I had my sport management. I did my lead green associate and was just kind of doing both things. And they were like, hey, have you seen this sports sustainability leadership program at Seattle University? I was like, that's a thing. I didn't even know that sports sustainability was a thing, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was like, wow. So I looked into the program and I was like, all right, I got to finish my undergrad. It's a master's program. And at the same time, I was like, all right, it was more of a certificate. It wasn't, you know, a full degree. So I was like, well, maybe I'll go for my MBA and I'll do the sports sustainability leadership thing. All right. So that's what I wound up doing. I wound up getting my MBA and doing the sports sustainability leadership. And then it was like, okay, you know, I'm pretty good at this. And and I just got such a high from educating people yeah, of, uh, about the sustainability. I mean, it was just, and when you saw something good happen, it was the most amazing experience. And I'm like, you know what? I want to teach. And it just, then the goal as I was going through all these master's programs was I want to get my PhD. I want to teach. I want to be able to take the next generation of sport managers and teach them you know, not only share my business experience, but hopefully share my passion of sustainability that they can bring with them. Because through that sports sustainability leadership program, I got to work with a, with an institution, um, a college, and I got to bring together the Office of Sustainability with athletics. And it was a great divide, uh, different you know, completely different mindsets, you know, obviously ecocentric on one side, anthropocentric on the other. And to see them come together and start talking at the table. And it was, it was just the greatest experience and that, and that sealed it for me. So then I, um, worked, I got into University of Tennessee, which is where I'm at now. And I'm working with uh, Dr. Trenda Falova. She's my advisor. And thanks to Dr. McCullough, who introduced me to you. And, you know, we got to do some great things with the whole transformative learning, experiential learning, and, you know, with the sustainability. And it's just been, it's just been, oh my gosh, an amazing ride since then. And I can't, I just can't wait. So I kind of fell into this. It, It just, it wasn't planned, but it just keeps going and it keeps changing. And it's just, I want to do it all, but unfortunately I know I can't. (laughs) Right. Right. No. And who can, right. Who can. So you, you know, raising two kids, full-time school for the last almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. And now in the PhD program, Mm -hmm. we actually met Mm -hmm. um, at at a conference for sustainability in Vancouver and went skating. It was your first time skating. So that was kind of fun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the picture played, played a couple hours and went skating instead um and mm-hmm. and and we've since been involved in a couple of projects together and I want to talk about that because I think that I mm-hmm. you and I are at very different stages in our kind of professional development right mm-hmm. um and, but I yeah. think that that collaboration is so key and I think it's why it's been so fruitful as we have such different experiences and that when it comes to sustainability mm-hmm. that works 
you know, you were talking about how sustainability and athletics at your school had very different perspectives when they came together, you know, magic happened. Um, and I think it's been very similar with our sport ecology group where everybody has slightly different mm -hmm. academic experiences, but the reason that it's magic is, is because of those differences. Um, yeah. and, and speaking of differences in the sustainability sense, one of your recent projects is the president's cup in Australia. And so mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about that because yes. It's rare. So there's a couple pieces that are rare to me, and I'm hoping you'll speak to them. One, to see such different cultures clashing in one place. Um, and, and then two, mm -hmm. to see that happening in a sport context. Because often when you get to a sport facility, everybody kind of, quote unquote, plays the game, right? You go in, you sit, you mm -hmm. cheer. You know, the only differences probably are going to be that you're going to see or, or one team versus the other. And, and other than that, everyone's kind of in the same mindset. Um, that's not what you saw. Yeah. No. Um, I was lucky enough to get to go, as you said, in Melbourne, Australia. Um, my sister won her fantasy <laughs> golf league. I didn't even know this was a thing. <laughs> Again, one of these, she's like, hey, you want to go to Australia? Yeah, you know, Tiger Woods, cool, sure. you know, check that off the bucket list. So then I was like, all right, well, I've got to figure out, you know, because in my head, you have, you know, the traditional sport of kings, you know, how I played golf. I worked on a golf course, so I knew the etiquette. I knew how it was supposed to be, and I'm trying to get ready. And she's like, oh, no, no, you got to do research. This is different. She goes, this is a different event completely. Um, and it's like, yeah, things have changed in golf. And, you know, since Tiger came in, he changed the whole demographic. He changed the people, the fans. And so she's like, no, no, this is different. I said, okay. I said, so I started doing some research and I'm like, wow, is this really how this tournament is? I was like, I'm looking at pictures of people in the craziest golf wear I've ever seen. There's people walking around in prom dresses, just this crazy culture that you do not expect. And so I went there and I'm like, you know what, if I'm going to be traveling halfway around the world, I am going to try and figure out how to, you know, gather information while I'm there. I'm going to look at the sustainability. I'm going to see what is like going on. Academic. You know, <laughs> Yeah, you know, you can't you can't just go no, somewhere. No, I'm I'm going to figure out how to do this because how many people get a chance, you know, especially here in North America to, to travel to Australia to see an event. Um so this was my first professional golf event. I mean, I even though I played and have been to every, mostly every other event, I've never been to golf to actually mm -hmm. see it and to see the way the fans are. And so I'm, you know, did some pre-research, you know, before I went and looked at you know, what the demographic was going to be, what I might expect, looked at the places to see their views on sustainability. And I'm like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to watch fan behavior. I'm going to see how they interact. I'm going to see what is communicated by the actual event organizers. Um, are the fans, are they buying it? Are they not? Are they going to, you know, what are they going to do? And I went down there and the first thing that blew my mind is that there was no recycling. There was no sustainability period um, over the course of four days of searching. And I searched everywhere I could while I was watching golf. I found one recycling bin hidden behind a porta potty. 
And I found a second one at one of the actual greens where the golfers were teeing off so that they could put their recycling in there. That that was it. Almost 200,000 people. And so then I just said, okay, well, we know that's the first piece of the puzzle. They're, you know, recycling is not being, not even basic recycling, you know, so how are fans going to react? And I was blown away by what I saw. It was like, without that lead, it was like behaviors mm-hmm. almost reverted. So this culture was so strong of non-sustainable behavior, not even environmental, but social. And it was, and that's what got me thinking. I was like, you know, this is interesting. And then I started looking for um, published works that had looked at this before to see why. And to see, you know, because the first thing I thought of was, you know, waste management Mm -hmm. open. You know, I thought about this whole culture of sustainability. And I was like, wow, you know, they're really successful. Again, another unique culture. Um, So I'm, I'm really vested in this project. Um, moving forward, I want I want to investigate much many more um, events and kind of see how the culture plays into yeah. fan behavior, especially when it comes to sustainable behavior. You know what cues and how are people acting? Are they acting as expected? Can can it be changed? Can it you know? So just a fascinating fascinating subject for me right now to look into the fan behavior is just blowing my mind when it comes to sustainability. And what I find so interesting about that is like, we often talk about, and I, you know, ramble on about this all the time, but like sustainability has got to be more than recycling. But what this study is really showing Mm -hmm. is like, but it does have to start with something that is recognizable that people can get invested in. And as they say, recycling is the gateway drug to sustainability. And in some cases we do just have to make, the organizations take that first step and then push from there, right? Like you don't get the Mm -hmm. waste management open or Phoenix open overnight. That doesn't just happen. Um, A a phenomenal event and shout out to Lee Spivak and all the folks who worked on that. But there's a culture that Mm -hmm. has to surround this and the culture can be potentially switched with a few cues and and recycling maybe one of them right and so it's it's funny that you know in, in some parts of the world I'm in Canada we're rambling on about like okay that's not good enough to just have recycling meanwhile in Australia in certain certain events they don't they haven't even gotten that first step done and you can see the difference right Oh, absolutely. Um, But I think like you said, that's where it's going to start. Just basic because you can't, it's, it's, we all know that you, you can't change overnight. Change is incremental, but the first step is going to be this. I mean, I would love to see, and that's why I'm interested in going to different events that have these unique cultures. Yeah. Um, Because I want to see where they're at, what they're doing. And obviously Unique cultures can be changed. And like you said, the Phoenix Open, and they have changed. They have brought this amazingly unique culture to this event. And sustainability is it. And like you said, not just the recycling, it's the it's the whole thing. Whole it thing. is, what do they call it? The greenest show on earth? Yeah, something like that. Right, exactly. And so it can be done. But I think looking at the culture and trying to use that to your advantage might be the key, you know, on something like that. Yeah. And what's so unique about your work as well is that you're looking at the sustainability journey starting at point zero with that event, Mm -hmm. right? And often, like in my work, for example, I often come into situations or organizations where they're somewhere along that path in the journey, but they're usually not at square one. Like they're at Mm -hmm. square 10. 
Um, and so the conversations that I have are very different than the conversations that you would be having right. just to get people onto that path in the first place. And I think yeah. that's really cool. I think for me, that's where I like to start at the very beginning. You know, that's what happened when I was, you know, in the program at Seattle. It was basically the beginning and, and to see what you can start and just get it started. And, and, um, and it has to be done, you know, because there are so many, so many places that don't even have that square one. And that seems to be in all my projects that I've done where I've just happened to fit in. And where it happened to start for me. So I'm very comfortable with that. I'm very comfortable having that conversation, you know, when I bring it into the classroom. And and I think one of the greatest thing to me is to have a student say, I never even knew this. I didn't know what sport. I had never heard about it until you brought it up. And I think that is mm-hmm. for me just even putting that. Just even if they think about it for five minutes, it's there then where it wasn't before. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, Jamie, the queen of Square One Sustainability, thank you for <laughs> for joining. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Thank I think you. you know have had an unusual path as as friends in another city yes. at a conference, um, and we became fast friends on this crazy sustainability Absolutely. journey. And it's been it's been great chatting with you on the pod. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate it more than you know. <laughs>